of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham, Chapter 80, Segment 1. For the next three months, Philip worked on subjects which were new to him. The unwieldy crowd, which had entered the medical school nearly two years before, had thinned out. Some had left the hospital finding the examinations more difficult to pass than they expected. Some had been taken away by parents who had not foreseen the expense of life in London, and some had drifted away to other callings. One youth whom Philip knew had devised an ingenious plan to make money. He had bought things at sales and pawned them, but presently found it more profitable to pawn goods bought on credit, and it had caused a little excitement at the hospital when someone pointed out his name in police court proceedings. There had been a remand, then assurances on the part of the harassed father, and the young man had gone out to bear the white man's burden overseas. The imagination of another, a lad who had never before been in a town at all, fell to the glamour of music halls and bar parlours. He spent his time among racing men, tipsters, and trainers, and now was become a bookmaker's clerk. Philip had seen him once in a bar near Piccadilly Circus in a tight-waisted coat and a brown hat with a broad, flat brim. A third, with a gift for singing and mimicry, who had achieved success at the smoking concerts of the medical school by his imitation of notorious comedians, had abandoned the hospital for the chorus of a musical comedy. Still another, and he interested Philip because his uncouth manner and interjectional speech did not suggest that he was capable of any deep emotion, had felt himself stifle among the houses of London. He grew haggard and shut in spaces, and the soul he knew not he possessed struggled like a sparrow held in the hand, with little frightened gasps and a quick palpitation of the heart. He yearned for the broad skies and the open, desolate places among which his childhood had been spent and he walked off one day, without a word to anybody, between one lecture and another, and the next thing his friends heard was that he had thrown up medicine and was working on a farm. Philip attended now lectures on medicine and on surgery. On certain mornings in the week, he practiced bandaging on outpatients glad to earn a little money, and he was taught auscultation and how to use the stethoscope. He learned dispensing, he was taking the examination in Materia Medica in July, and it amused him to play with various drugs, concocting mixtures, rolling pills, and making ointments. He seized avidly upon anything from which he could extract a suggestion of human interest. End of segment one. Chapter 80, Segment 2 He saw Griffiths once in the distance, but, not to have the pain of cutting him dead, avoided him. Philip had felt a certain self-consciousness with Griffiths' friends, some of whom were now friends of his, when he realized they knew of his quarrel with Griffiths and surmised they were aware also of the reason. One of them, a very tall fellow with a small head and a languid air, a youth called Ramsden, who was one of Griffiths' most faithful admirers, copied his ties, his boots, his manner of talking, and his gestures, told Philip that Griffiths was very much hurt because Philip had not answered his letter. He wanted to be reconciled with him. "'Has he asked you to give me the message?' asked Philip. "'Oh, no, I'm saying this entirely on my own,' said Ramsden. "'He's awfully sorry for what he did, and he says you always behave like a perfect brick to him. I know he'd be glad to make it up. He doesn't come to the hospital because he's afraid of meeting you, and he thinks you'd cut him.' I should. 
It makes him feel rather wretched, you know. I can bear the trifling inconvenience that he feels with a good deal of fortitude, said Philip. He'll do anything he can to make it up. How childish and hysterical. Why should he care? I'm a very insignificant person, and he can do very well without my company. I'm not interested in him any more. Ramsden thought Philip hard and cold. He paused for a moment or two, looking about him in a perplexed way. Harry wishes to God he'd never had anything to do with the woman. Does he? asked Philip. He spoke with an indifference which he was satisfied with. No one could have guessed how violently his heart was beating. He waited impatiently for Ramsden to go on. I suppose you've quite got over it now, haven't you? I, said Philip. Quite. Little by little he discovered the history of Mildred's relations with Griffiths. He listened with a smile on his lips, feigning an equanimity which quite deceived the dull-witted boy who talked to him. The weekend she spent with Griffiths at Oxford inflamed rather than extinguished her sudden passion, and, with Griffith, and when Griffiths went home with a feeling that was unexpected in her, she determined to stay in Oxford by herself for a couple of days because she had been so happy in it. She felt that nothing could induce her to go back to Philip. He revolted her. Griffiths was taken aback at the fire he had aroused, for he had found his two days with her in the country somewhat tedious, and he had no desire to turn an amusing episode into a tiresome affair. She made him promise to write to her, and being an honest, decent fellow, with natural politeness and a desire to make himself pleasant to everybody, when he got home he wrote her a long and charming letter. She answered it with reams of passion, clumsy, for she had no gift of expression, ill-written and vulgar. The letter bored him, and when it was followed next day by another, and the day after by a third, he began to think her love no longer flattering, but alarming. He did not answer, and she bombarded him with telegrams, asking him if he were ill, and had received her letters. She said his silence made her dreadfully anxious. End of segment two. Chapter 80, Segment 3. He was forced to write, but he sought to make his reply as casual as was possible without being offensive. He begged her not to wire, since it was difficult to explain telegrams to his mother, an old-fashioned person for whom a telegram was still an event to excite tremor. She answered by return of post that she must see him and announced her intention to pawn things. She had the dressing case which Philip had given her as a wedding present and could raise eight pounds on that in order to come up and stay at the market town four miles from which was the village in which his father practiced. This frightened Griffiths, and he, this time, made use of the telegraph wires to tell her that she must do nothing of the kind. He promised to let her know the moment he came up to London, and, when he did, found that she had already been asking for him at the hospital at which he had an appointment. He did not like this, and on seeing her, told Mildred that she was not to come there on any pretext, and now, after an absence of three weeks, he found that she bored him quite decidedly. He wondered why she had ever troubled about her, and made up his mind to break with her as soon as he could. He was a person who dreaded quarrels, nor did he want to give pain, but at the same time he had other things to do, and was quite determined not to let Mildred bother him. When he met her, he was pleasant, cheerful, amusing, affectionate. He invented convincing excuses for the interval since he had last seen her, but he did everything he could to avoid her. When she forced him to make appointments, he sent telegrams to her at the last moment to put himself off, 
and his landlady, the first three months of his appointment he was spending in rooms, had orders to say he was out when Mildred called. She would waylay him in the street, and knowing she had been waiting about for him to come out of the hospital for a couple of hours, he would give her a few charming friendly words and bolt, and bolt off with the excuse that he had a business engagement. He grew very skillful in slipping out of the hospital unseen. Once, when he went back to his lodgings at midnight, he saw a woman standing at the area railings and, suspecting who it was, went to beg a shakedown in Ramsden's rooms. Next day, the landlady told him that Mildred had sat crying on the doorstep for hours, and she had been obliged to tell her at last that, if she did not go away, she would send for a policeman. "'I tell you, my boy,' said Ramsden, "'you're jolly well out of it. Harry says that if he'd suspected for half a second she was going to make such a blooming nuisance of herself, he'd have seen himself damn before he had anything to do with her. Philip thought of her sitting on that doorstep through the long hours of the night. He saw her face as she looked up dully at the landlady who sent her away. I wonder what she's doing now. Oh, she's got a job somewhere, thank God, that keeps her busy all day. The last thing he heard just before the end of the summer session, was that Griffith's urbanity had given way at length under the exasperation of the constant persecution. He had told Mildred that he was sick of being pestered, and she had better take herself off and not bother him again. It was the only thing he could do, said Ramsden. It was getting a bit too thick. Is it all over then? asked Philip. Oh, he hasn't seen her for ten days. You know, Harry's wonderful at dropping people. This is about the toughest nut he's ever had to crack, but he's cracked it all right. Then Philip heard nothing more of her at all. She vanished into the vast anonymous mass of the population of London. End of segment three.